We concluded our summer series in uh, Romans 8 this morning, and now we conclude the series of Nehemiah tonight. That was not planned, but I love when somebody else's plan comes together. So that's just nice and neat. We can start then um, after the Labor Day weekend, our, t- our next two series. So in the morning, uh, we'll be getting a, a study in um, Samuel, First and Second Samuel. And then in the evening, First Corinthians, Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. Uh, but tonight, the conclusion of Nehemiah, chapter 13, beginning in verse 4. Now, before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, he was the Ammonite that has been mentioned throughout the book as one of the enemies of God's people. He was related to Tobiah. He prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levite singers and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king, came to Jerusalem, and then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. And I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together, and I set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses, And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah, the priest Zadok, the scribe, and Padeah of the Levites, as their assistant Hanan, the son of Zachor, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to the brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. And I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. And then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. 
From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gate to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God. Because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priests and Levites each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the fr- first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Well, I believe the immediate question about the text that we've just read is this. Why does it exist? Why is this part of the story um, of the return of Israel and the rebuilding of the walls as Nehemiah has recorded it so far? What is it doing here? Do you remember what we looked at last week at the um, second part of chapter 12, starting in verse 27? You remember that? You can look back there in your Bibles. Maybe your Bible has a heading at verse 27 about the dedication of the walls. That's what we looked at last time. It was an exhilarating story, a scene uh, from this story of the return. There was this a massive celebration, this uh, concert of 200 plus Levites coming to lead the praises of the people. Remember, they separated them into to parades, two different uh, parading bands that marched Uh, in opposite directions around the city till they met in the house of God where they offered up praises to God. And we saw that that this is what it's all meant to be. God's redeemed people in a rebuilt city there in God's house. Curtain closed, right? That, That should be it. That should have been the end. Well, what's going on here? Why doesn't the book end there? Why do we have this chapter? Compared with the previous section, this chapter is, in theological terms, a bummer. This just is like, just a bummer way to to end a story, right? It's very intense, um, negative. There's a a lot of, you know, warning about judgment, and Nehemiah is pulling people's hair out. What is going on? Why do we have this chapter? Well, beyond that thematic curiosity, there's a time curiosity. So that's, that's the first thing. Thematically, why does this belong? But then there's a time curiosity too. Look at the beginning of our text, verse 4. 
And the, the very first words there, now before this. You might recall the reason last week we took it through the first three verses of chapter 13 is because of the first three words at the beginning of chapter 13. On that day. And then you go back to chapter 12, verse 44. On that day. And back to 27. At the dedication of the wall. Okay, so that means 27 to 13 through 13.3 is all about the dedication of the wall. Because we have this great, great big parade and, and worship service. And then there are a few other things. But Nehemiah is very clear. I want you to know this happened on the day of the dedication. On that day, this happened. On that day. It's all about the dedication. But then... We read verse 4, and we have, now before this, Nehemiah is doing a flashback. So that means that this weird ending actually doesn't take place at the end of the story. This has happened before the dedication of the wall. Now we're really curious. Nehemiah, it's not like you could have had a good ending and then something bad happened, and then you felt compelled to include it, just to be honest. No, he has some, he has some, there's some, pedagogical, some, some instructive purpose for which he decides, I'm actually going to conclude this story with a flashback. Why? Well, here's my answer for you. Nehemiah constructs his narrative in this way to teach an important theological lesson. He does not want the seemingly neat ending of a rebuilt wall and a renewed people and a happy and holy people to distract from this lesson because the lesson is true regardless of this ending. Okay, But this is why he puts it in. Here's the lesson. The lesson is this. Until the prophets are fulfilled and Yahweh himself enters the temple and Yahweh himself dwells with his people, the work is not done. That's the lesson. Until God himself comes down, until God himself lives with his people, the work is not done for those who follow God. And that's why... This chapter is punctuated by four prayers from Nehemiah, and they all begin like this. Remember. Remember, O God. He prays to God because God has still not yet come. Uh, We're not, you know, there's that great hymn, Jesus, I, my cross have taken, and it, it looks forward to heaven, and it talks about prayer is turned to praise. Right? There's no more need to supplicate, to make intercession. Well, not there yet. Nehemiah's praying because God's not with him. He's not with God. He prays to God because God has still not yet come in the Messiah to take up his home with his people. They need God desperately. They need the Messiah desperately. Until he comes again, the people need to be vigilant and prayerful. They need to be vigilant and prayerful because they are still in need of two things. And this is what I'm going to try to show us tonight. They're in need of two things. I think as we look at the prayers of Nehemiah, these two things come out over and over again. Purity and protection. Purity and protection. And although some some good steps have been made in those directions, we will never be completely pure or or, uh, enjoying the peace of being protected until we're with Christ. That, that's the lesson here. We'll never be completely pure until he comes again. And notice, I, I was careful in the way I said it. I didn't say we won't be protected until he comes again. We are protected. But we will not enjoy the peace of being protected until he comes again. A debtor to mercy alone has a wonderful line at the very end talking about the, the 
preservation of the saints. And it says that, uh, talking about those who've gone in heaven, it says, more happy but not more secure are the glorified spirits in heaven. That, that's, that's the reality. They, they enjoy it, but they're not more safe. They're not more secure. They're not any more protected than we are. But until he comes again, we will not be perfectly pure or enjoy the peace of protection. So notice these two things with me, purity and protection. Four prayers issued by Nehemiah in response to his work at purifying the practice of the people of Jerusalem. Um, and then one of the prayers also a plea for protection from enemies. All of the prayers act as a sort of summary statement for what came before them. So, um, and the first three in particular are, share a lot of commonalities. The commonalities go like this. Nehemiah encounters a problem, and then there's a confrontation that he engages, usually physical, uh, and then there's a resolution that he enacts. So there's a problem, there is then a confrontation, and then a resolution. And in each case, there are foreign people that are involved, foreign forces, um, foreign influences. So the first instance has to do with the profaning of God's place, the temple, and the worship of God's people. That's verse 4 through verse 14. That's the first thing. The second has to do with profaning God's day. The first, God's place. The second, God's day, the Sabbath. That's verses 15 through 22. Then third, in verses 23 through 29, Nehemiah addresses the profaning of God's people. God's place, God's day, then God's people themselves through their intermarrying of foreign idolatrous peoples. And then there's, and he prays after each one of those episodes. There's a prayer offered up after each one of those episodes. But um, the final prayer at the very end of the chapter is, is just an overall prayer in pursuit of purity in Jerusalem. That's why he says there in verse 30, thus I cleanse them from everything. So it's kind of a, a summary statement. But let's look at those three main ones. God's place, God's uh, day, God's people. In the case of the temple and the worship of God, Nehemiah finds out that the high priest, Eliashib, had given Tobiah, one of those recurring enemies, along with Sambalat, um, uh, who have been, uh, Tobiah in this case, who has been against the work of the wall from the very beginning. Uh, he would have been, you know, the guy at a, there's like a development project in town. He's the guy who chains himself to the tree to make sure that the government can't come in and, and dig up the property. That, that's, that's Tobiah and Sambal and these guys. They're doing everything they can to make sure that Nehemiah cannot restore Jerusalem. And what does Nehemiah find? It's astounding. He's had to return to Artaxerxes and the Persian capital, do some business, because you remember, he's, he's kind of on loan from the foreign government here. Nehemiah is, is an actor of the state of Persia. That's, that's the crazy thing about all this. This is, has the stamp of approval from the government, but he does work for their government. He goes back for a while. We don't know how long he's there. And when he comes back to Jerusalem, he finds that inside the temple, there now is an, is an office dedicated to Tobiah, the Ammonite. He's got his own office space. What is going on? Elisha, uh, the, uh, the high priest, has given him this dedicated space within God's holy temple. And uh, that's not bad. That would have been bad for anybody. Nobody should have, have a space like that. But it's really bad because he's an Ammonite. We saw last time, the beginning of chapter 13, 
God said, no Ammonite, no Moabite can enter my presence because of the way they've treated my people. They have a curse upon them. And uh, Elisha ignores that. He does that because he's related to him, we're told, which that's not good either. How is the high priest related to the Ammonite? Like, just think about that. What does that mean about the high priest then? Now, it's possible there might not be a blood relation. It could be translated. Maybe some of you have something like he was allied with him. Maybe. Again, that's, that's the bad. That's not good. Why is he friends with an enemy of God's people? Uh, so, Tobiah is in the temple. He's defiling the temple with his presence. Uh, this led to the misuse of funds that should have gone to the priests and the Levites. And so, Nehemiah's reaction, I wonder if it sounded familiar to you. I was very angry and I threw the household furniture out of the chamber and I gave orders and they cleansed the chamber and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God. Here we have somebody indignant about something taking place in the temple of God, in the worship space of God that should not have been taking place and the reaction is to throw the furniture around. Maybe foreshadowing. Maybe it's just a coincidence. It's not a coincidence. This is uh, clear evidence of one divine author writing the whole story of Scripture that culminates in the person of Jesus Christ. But I don't want to steal my thunder for later, so we'll get back to that in a moment. So that's the, that's the instance of uh, the, the uh, profaning of God's place. Then there's the profaning of God's day, the Sabbath. Nehemiah discovers that people are working. They're, they're buying and they're selling on the day that's reserved for rest and worship. Uh, verse 15, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing heaps of grain, loading them on donkeys, and he goes on. Um, and that's, that episode continues through verse 22. And again, there's the infiltration of foreigners that are corrupting the practice of God's people. So you have the Ammonite, who's got a, a, who's got a cushy spot in the temple. Here we're told in 16, uh, Tyrians, people from Tyre, um, are the ones who are living in the city and bringing in fish and all kinds of good and selling them on the Sabbath to the Israelites. So Nehemiah takes the call to holiness so seriously that he sets people up to guard the city gates so that nobody can get in um, the night before uh, to set up booths to sell things on the Sabbath day. And then finally, uh, God's people are profane. Nehemiah takes steps to stop uh, the practice of intermarriage. He resorts to physically beating some of the Israelites who've committed this sin um, verse 25, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Does it sound harsh? I think if you said that to Nehemiah, his response would be uh, that the blows he leveled were minor in comparison to the repercussions of the people continuing to align themselves with foreign God-haters. You know, a slap on the wrist from me or even pulling out some of your hair is nothing to experiencing the full weight of the curse of God. And, and not just on you, but generations to come. Did you notice that's really what's at stake here? They were already seeing the effects in their own time. Verse 24 says, the children who are now descendants from these intermarried couples don't even know the Hebrew language anymore. So what Nehemiah is doing is, is it's strong, it's harsh, but because the stakes are so high... They're about to lose um, the future of the nation. Their identity, the identity of the covenant people could be lost. 
You know, the world expects the church to compromise, and we should be grateful when men, leaders like Nehemiah, are willing to call out sin and snap us out of our backsliding. Nehemiah was a righteous leader, and this is what he appeals to three times over in this chapter as he prays to God. He's saying, Lord, deal kindly with me. Remember me for what I've done here. And it's interesting. He says that in response to how bad the Israelites are being, it's almost as though he's saying, I followed your ways, and so... Even if this people doesn't get it, even if they don't turn things around, and if they don't repent, and if they do receive your curse, please remember me, because I'm not like them. Remember me in your steadfast love. Three of his prayers say that explicitly, or something to that effect. One of the prayers isn't about him. It's verse 29. It's about the enemies of God. It's not that God would remember him. It's that he would remember them, the enemies. So verse 29, remember them. Oh, my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So he prays against those who come from outside of Jerusalem and who threaten her purity, enemies of God. But then there's an enemy within. He's even praying against people who who are perverted from the inside, you know, Levites who are twisting things. Um, So, yeah, he's praying against people like Sanballat, an outsider, but then priests who are insiders. Wolves who sneak into positions of leadership and corrupt and abuse their power. So there's almost like it's an imprecatory prayer. So when he says, remember me, it's in love. When he says, remember them, he means in judgment. And so Nehemiah's focus, the final chapter, is on purity and protection. Uh, He's praying that the Lord, uh, or the actions he's taking is to purify the people. Uh, He he makes this prayer about uh, those enemies praying for protection from their influence. And he focuses on that in the final chapter, even even bringing us down from the emotional thrill of the dedication of the walls uh, in the chapter previous. Why? Because the work of God's people is not complete until God comes and dwells with us. The worship will never be pure, and the people will never be sinless. And the city never completely secure until God dwells there. And that's why the church is still plagued with the very same things that Nehemiah dealt with thousands of years ago. Uh, they've already been mentioned. We talked about them when in the new covenant or in the covenant renewal ceremony in chapter ten. These very sins: profaning worship, profaning the Sabbath, profaning uh, um, rules of sexual morality and marriage. Um, so I don't want to. We don't need to spend more time going into the applications of those. The point is that those sins are still very much with us today. Our worship is not what it should be. Our observance of the Lord's Day is not what we are called to. Uh, uh, That is to say, the way we observe the Lord's Day isn't in the way that we're called to observe it often. In our own practice of separating ourselves from sin is paltry, to say the least, and pathetic. That's why Paul exhorts believers generations later uh, from Nehemiah in a way that we need to hear generations later in the 21st century. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. That's what Nehemiah is saying. Why are you marrying the Ammonites and the, the Ashdites? Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? 
For it's written that two will become one flesh. But he who's joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So what's, what's Paul saying? If you're a Christian, if you're joined by the spirit, the Lord is in you. He's in you. Now what happens when you who have the spirit go and sin in your bodies? You're taking the Lord with you into that sin. Right? The two shall become one flesh. We get that. And we get that we share the spirit of God. Well, so that you have to do some math there. But you can understand the point Paul's making. How can we who have the spirit indulge in sins in which we would have to say, wait, I who am at a temple of the Lord have committed with this temple something that should not be done. And Paul goes on, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you've, you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. So the church is still vulnerable to these kinds of sins. The church is also vulnerable to attacks like uh, Israel was. Attacks from without and from within. You remember what Peter says. False prophets will uh, also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. He said that happened back in Israel. It will happen in the church. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be blasphemed. This is what will happen in the church. And so, what's the point then for us? If we have seen the sins that Nehemiah is dealing with, and we say, a lot of those look pretty familiar to me, they're the sins... I'm dealing with the sins we're dealing with. What's the point? The point is we need to have the perspective on the church that Nehemiah had on Israel. The the perspective that Nehemiah so cleverly incorporates into his book. That perspective is this. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. Uh, We need to keep our eyes fixed forward on what's still to come. Namely, God himself. And that will do two wonderful things for us. If we can keep our eyes pointed forward. The first is it will keep us from despair. Can you imagine if I got up here and told you today, the state of the church right now is that's as good as it's going to get. What if that was the message preachers had to bring? Would we not despair? How, how deflating, how disappointing to find out that this is all there is. You, you know, it's happened to you on birthday or Christmas. You get a, 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 a really nice gift bag and there's all that tissue paper. It's a big gift bag, right? And you reach in and you pull out some, you know, a nice little hand towel or candle or whatever. Yeah, that's great. But it's a really big gift bag. And there's a lot of tissue paper. So what do you do? You go back in. And you're looking. And finally, the person who gave you the gift has to awkwardly say, well, that, that's all there is. There, there isn't it. Stop, stop looking. I, that's all it is. That's disappointing, isn't it? What if that was the church? For all your searching, for all your hoping and your wishing, somebody says, this is as good as it gets. This is it. No, you with all your sin? No. That's, that's, it's going to stay there. Oh, all the, the troubles of false teachers and, and confusing doctrines? No, well, we just got to figure that out. We're just going to deal with that. How disappointing. Well, this isn't it. Perfect purity and impenetrable protection awaits the church. Perfect purity and impenetrable protection awaits the church.
so we don't despair. That's the first thing, if we keep our eyes forward. The second thing is, it, it, does, it only, not only makes us not despair, it makes us eager. Uh, it, it keeps us from being complacent. We'll be like Paul who said, not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. I want to know what this is like because why? Christ Jesus has made me his own. Because he's bought me, because I am his, I'm going to do everything to experience what it means to belong fully to him. Christ is Paul's motivation, and he needs to be our motivation too. We need a better leader than Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, for all of his righteous uh, character and his sterling uh, leadership qualities, he is even pointing us to a better leader in the way he writes this narrative. He knows that the reforms and the revival necessary to bring upon the Messianic age did not happen under his watch. And that's why he ends the book the way he does. He's telling us it needs to happen under somebody else's. He doesn't know who it is. But he says, it clearly wasn't me. And so if you and I are to have any hope at all, we need a leader like Nehemiah, but also one unlike Nehemiah. One who, like Nehemiah, would pray, remember me, O God. But there's a difference in his prayer. Because Nehemiah prays, remember me according to my righteousness. Right, that you would preserve me. And Jesus prays, remember me and my righteousness in order to preserve my people. Nehemiah's prayer was something like, in case things don't turn around, and if they don't repent, at least spare me. Jesus' prayer is, because things won't turn around, and because they won't repent, don't spare me. Don't spare me. Having come once already in humility, to bear our sin, to pay our debt, to take on our curse, we can absolutely, positively be assured of the second coming, when he will come to bring a full fruition of the things that we need so badly, a church that's free from sin, pure, and a church that's free from sinners, right? Once we are purified, then we know the church will be protected from those dangers within and those dangers even from without. John speaks of the church like this, Revelation 19.8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. That, that's looking ahead To see the fulfillment of what Christ's victory on the cross secured for the church. What did he do at the cross? Paul tells us in Ephesians 5. He loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might, here it is, present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. Paul says in Ephesians, he died so that he might do this. Revelation tells us he will do it. He died for the church so that he might, be present, he might present her to himself as pure and blameless. And then Revelation says, oh, and it happens, and here's what it looks like. And she'll be protected as well. Revelation 21, 27. Nothing unclean will ever enter the new Jerusalem. There's no Tobias, no Sambalats, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Here's the glorious way that one writer describes the church triumphant. We call it sometimes the church triumphant in heaven. It says, sharing in the glory of Christ, seated at the right hand of God, the church triumphant reigns with him over his earthly subjects. Its glory exceeds the power of human imagination. Its splendor is such that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, 
and never has there arisen in the heart of man the majesty and the power of this church. There is protection in the church. And these very things are promised, not just to the church generally, but to each and every one of her members individually. So, dear believer, know tonight that you will be perfectly pure and perfectly protected. That day is coming, and until then, we keep working, we keep watching, we keep waiting, and we say, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word to us tonight. We ask that you would write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. For Christ's sake, amen.